Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Daniel. It is a joy to serve as one of the pastors here at The Crossing. Uh, if you're visiting with us, on behalf of our whole church family, I'd like to just say welcome. Uh, the Lord could have directed your steps to a number of different things this morning, whether it's watching Formula One racing, or NASCAR, or, I don't know, soccer, but he's, but he's led you here. So, we're glad you're here. We hope you hear from Jesus. We hope that he's intriguing. And our mission statement as a church, it's to make disciples of Jesus of Christ for the glory of God and the joy of his people. So we want to make disciples in everything that we do. And so we hope by you being here, you are a more effective disciple of Jesus. So I've got a handful of announcements for you guys. If you didn't get a bulletin when he came in, feel free to raise your hand. And Shay or Kaylee can put one in your hand. Uh, first up, we've got Man School coming up. Uh, Man Schools are once a month men's ministry. We're kind of in our summertime flow here. So on June 4th, Tuesday, June 4th, we're going to do a park day, kind of bring your own meat, grill it out, do a bunch of grunting in preparation for Grunt Fest later on in the summer. So June 4th, uh, we're still determining the park that it'll be at, but it'll be Tuesday night, probably 6, 7 o'clock, you, you know the routine. Uh, so keep an eye out for more details there, but mark your calendars. Also, TLC, the Ladies of the Crossing, this month they're going to be doing a hike. So that's on June 18th. There's more info in your bulletin there. So these are things just to mark your calendar, guys. We're in our summertime flow. We kind of pan things back a little bit. Um, but it's a great opportunity for you to come rub shoulders with other people, other men, other women in our church family, and to uh, invite friends and family who maybe don't know Jesus into that context as well. So those are those dates. Also, we have our Belong class coming up. For those of you who don't know what our Belong class is, this is our covenant partnership class. Kind of think you could think membership. What does it mean to belong to the crossing? What do we believe when you commit to being a part of this church? What does that commitment look like? So that's coming up. And so if you're a visitor and, and you're serious about joining the crossing church, we encourage you to take this class. It's a two-week class. We've got Sunday, June 9th and 16th. It's on Sunday mornings from 8 a.m. to 9.45. So then right after, you can just join us for the, oh, excuse me, the gathering. And uh, yeah, child care is provided. So if you would like to sign up, you can text your name and your email to that phone number right there. Uh, we don't pass a clipboard anymore. That's so old-fashioned and in antiquity of the crossing. So feel free to text your name and, and we'll get you signed up for that. So. Uh, a couple other things, they're kind of housekeeping maintenance for us here with the crossing. Um, as you know, spring has sprung with all this rain, and that grass out there, it's getting pretty big. It's getting pretty long. So uh, we are looking for more folks who want to serve and volunteer by cutting the, the turf that we have here. So if you want to be on the lawn crew, it's once a month. It takes about an hour if you have a full team of guys, and uh, it's a great way to serve. Um, so if you would like to serve in that capacity, you can see Dustin Swindler. He's right here in the front, uh, and he can get you signed up and, and ready to go for that. And then uh, last week I shared about this summer expense fund, uh, and some of you have responded, and we have about six grand that we've raised of our 20 grand goal, so thank you for that. Um, but, but more importantly, guys, uh, we're raising these funds not just to replace flooring and upgrade bathrooms and have lighting in our parking lot. It's, it's more than that. 
Guys, God has given us this great facility. It's a great facility for us to gather in on Sunday mornings, sing songs to Jesus, hear from his word. But more than that, just this last week, we had 12 potentially future pastors getting training here in this facility. In the fall, we're going to partner with Alpha Center for expectant moms who maybe are single moms, and we're going to open up our doors for free so that they can take care of this facility. So uh, when you give to something like a summer expense fund, you're not giving to these expenses. You're not giving to a budget line item. You're giving to something greater, and you're giving to the kingdom of God that has come. So prayerfully ask that you would consider uh, giving a gift above your normal offering. Uh, you can get creative. I don't know if you have tax money left over or if you want to sell some stuff in the basement or sell your child's bed. I don't know. You can get creative. Um, but whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Okay, uh, last announcement. So today we're starting the Sermon on the Mount, as uh, you guys have heard. Uh, I just want to highlight this book uh, right here. It's called God's Big Picture. Uh, who here has read this book, just out of curiosity? I know a handful of life group folks have gone through it. Chad is pumping his fist in the back there. Um, this is a great little resource that we have out there at our bookstall. Uh, this book follows the theme of the kingdom of God from Genesis to Revelation. This is a great little resource. So as we're jumping into the uh, Sermon on the Mount, this can be a helpful companion to that study. So, uh, like all the resources that we have out there, guys, we're not here to make money off you buying books. Uh, some of these things are actually cheaper than Amazon, uh, and, and we take a loss when we sell these things to you, but it's not a loss because to get good resources in your hand is a great win for us, and it's a valuable ministry expense. So uh, there's a couple of these for sale left. Uh, highly recommend that among the other resources. So that's all the announcements I got. You guys stuck with me. Thanks. Great job. So uh, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 4 this morning. So if you have a Bible, please open it up. Uh, there's some black Bibles in the chairs in front of you. We're going to be on page 809, 809 in that black Bible in front of you. I'm going to invite Shay to come on up. She's going to read. And if you will, as we always do, would you uh, show reverence to the authority of God's Word and stand with us as Shea reads it? Matthew four seventeen through 5, 1. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he, he healed them. And the great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. 
Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. King Jesus, it's a joy to be with your people here this morning. And Lord, as I open my mouth to explain your word and prepare us for what you have for us this summer, God, I ask, just as you spoke to your disciples so many years ago on that mountainside, would you speak here now? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. All right. So I've got a little audience participation to start us out this morning. When you think of the most famous speech of all time, what comes to mind? Gettysburg Address. Yes. Abraham Lincoln. I was actually born in Gettysburg, so more power to you. All right, what else? What else we got? I have a dream. That's right. That's right. What else? Oh, gosh, come on. Miracle of speech. Okay, if you don't know what he's talking about, uh, Herb Brooks in the movie Miracle, Hockey, 1980, Summer Olympics. Come on. Uh, A few years ago, I actually showed a video of a little kid rehearsing that whole speech. If you were here, that's awesome. YouTube it. Um, Yeah, anything else? Anything else coming to mind? This one's for John. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, speeches. It's, it's a great medium to communicate. And in our age of social media and pictures and PowerPoints and all this, it's, it's kind of lost its luster. But this morning, and more specifically this summer, we're going to spend time sitting underneath the greatest speech of all time. And that is the Sermon on the Mount. Augustine of Hippo, a great uh, church father from the 4th century, he first coined the phrase, the Sermon on the Mount. The Bible actually doesn't say that. Um, But for this summer, we're actually going to be spending the summer on the Mount as we're uh, opening up God's Word and looking at Matthew chapters 5 through 7 and seeing what our great Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has to say. So, um, this is going to be a bit of an introductory sermon, as, as you could tell. We, we covered one verse in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, but as, uh, as Shay read, uh, and as we see what Jesus said in Matthew 4.17, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. And what he means is he's saying turn. He's saying pay attention. Something new is here. He's ushering in something new. And so, this summer, we're going to see what it means to live in that kingdom of heaven, and specifically what it means to be citizens of that kingdom. John Stott, famous Welsh preacher from the last century, I think he had the best quote about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is arguably, actually, it's it's arguably the most heard of all of Jesus' teaching. And it's arguably also the least understood of all his teaching. And certainly, it is the least obeyed. And so this morning, I'm going to follow that grid. And as kingdom citizens, we're going to see what it means to hear, 
what it means to understand and what it means to obey this great teaching from Jesus. Hear, understand, obey. Those are our three points this morning. So, first point, hear. We're going to look at who the audience is, and we're also going to see who this teacher is. So we're going to start with the teacher, Jesus, as Matthew, the evangelist and apostle, portrays him. So, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is presented early on in chapters 1 and 2. We see his origin and his birth. We see his origin from Matthew 1.1 as coming from Abraham. Abraham, you know, the guy who has all the families of the earth will be blessed as we've studied in Genesis. And that kings will come from Abraham. But we also see a connection to David. And we see this, this royal origin of Jesus, this royal lineage. And it's an eternal kingdom that he's talking about. And he's born of a virgin. All these prophecies are fulfilled. The Virgin Mary. And these great Advent passages that we spend time in every December. But this morning I want to make a different connection to our teacher. To Jesus. That I believe Matthew does make here in the Gospel of Matthew. And that connection is to Moses. It's to Moses. Now it's not explicit. But once you see it, it is very vibrant. It is very obvious. So, check out these connections. The first one has to do with the birth and genocide of Moses and Jesus. If you remember Moses, who wrote our first five books of the Bible, he comes on the scene in book two in Exodus one. There's a new king in town, King Pharaoh. This is a different Pharaoh that we saw at the end of Genesis. And this Pharaoh has the Israelites in his country, Egypt, and they're growing, and they're getting stronger. And Pharaoh gets a little nervous. And Pharaoh actually hates the Israelites because he's threatened by them. His authority is threatened by these Israelites. And so he enslaves them, he oppresses them, and he puts them under his thumb. And that, that threat of his authority is so great that he decides to kill all the male children from the nation of Israel. Because he wants to wipe them out. Similarly with Jesus, we have a different king, King Herod, when Jesus comes on the scene. And those of you that remember the Magi, they come and they visit him and they say, where is the king of the Jews? And he's like, what do you mean, king of the Jews? I'm the king in this land. And so he decides to go about his own genocide. And he kills all the male babies in the nation of Israel there. But in God's providential protection he protects Moses and he also protects Jesus he protects Moses by putting him in a basket and he goes down the river and then actually one of Pharaoh's daughters brings him out and then with Jesus he sends his parents Mary Joseph and Jesus down to Egypt and here's the other connection and just as Jesus was called out of Egypt he's connecting it to Moses who led the nation of Israel out of Egypt and the prophecy from Zechariah is fulfilled, out of Egypt I called my son. And then we see right as the nation of Israel in Exodus comes out, they go through the Red Sea and then they're into the wilderness for 40 years. And similarly, Jesus, he goes through the Jordan and then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. 
And so there's these connections that are being made, but probably the most stark and the most obvious is when Jesus ascends that mountain and he sits down. Just as Moses ascended Mount Sinai and got the revelation from God. The law, the Ten Commandments, if you will. And he shared them and he led the people of God. Similarly, Jesus, he doesn't get the revelation of God. No, he speaks the revelation of God. He speaks the revelation of God. And he's showing that he is a true and a better Moses. That the authority that Moses has is nothing in comparison to the authority that Jesus has. Moses talked about this. Moses spoke in Deuteronomy 18.15 and anticipating Jesus' coming. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen to. This is Jesus. This prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus, the great teacher who we will sit under all summer long. So that's our teacher. How about the audience? How about the audience? So as, as you heard when Shay read, there's this great crowd following Jesus. But before that, we see something a little bit more intimate and something that's very important that I think we need to take account of. So Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he goes and he finds two sets of brothers. He finds Andrew and Simon, who's Peter. And what are they doing? They're fishing. Well, they're mending their nets. They just got done fishing. And Jesus says two simple words that echo in their ears and in ours. He says, follow me. Follow me. And what do they do? They leave their nets and they follow him. They go after him. And that symbolism of leaving their nets, it's symbolism of they're leaving everything behind to follow Jesus. When he calls, they respond. Similarly with the other sets of brothers. James and John, sons of Zebedee. Zebedee's actually right there with them. They just got done fishing too. And Jesus says, follow me. And what does he do? What do they do? They leave their father and their boat. They're not just willing to leave their livelihood. They're willing to leave their family for Jesus. This is important for us. Because what Jesus is going to say to us this summer is going to threaten us. But it begs the question, are we willing to follow him? So, after that, verse 23 of chapter 4, Jesus begins his public ministry, which takes place in Galilee, northern Israel. And we see him, as he normally does, he, he goes into the synagogues. He goes to where the people of God are gathered together, and he begins to teach. And he says, and he, and he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. But then he begins to heal people. And then his fame begins to spread. And if you think about it, the audience, the people that are described here in chapter 4, who have been sick, who have been oppressed, who have been paralyzed, who have been hurting their whole life. They're the socially unacceptable people. Jesus heals them. And then they go home. They tell their family. They tell their friends. 
And they're like, who is this Jesus? I've got to meet this guy. I've got to get healed by this guy. And so more people come. More people want to get healed by Jesus. And he's not like, ugh, another group, another group. No, he heals them. He welcomes them. And they don't just get this physical healing. They find acceptance in the new community of God's people. And his fame spreads like a wildfire. And the whole region, the Decapolis, that's ten cities beyond the Jordan, his fame spreads. And this massive following of people coming to Jesus. What does he do? What does he do? He goes up for a hike, and he finds a nice place to rest, and he sits down, and he opens his mouth, and he begins teaching. These people are intrigued by his way of life, his acceptance, and by his teaching. So how about for us? How about for us today, and this summer, as we're going to hear Jesus' teaching? I think the first question we need to ask is, has he called you? Has he personally come to you and said, follow me? If he has, then there's great implications for our lives. It'll cost us our life, but oh, what joy that cost is. If he has said, follow me, guys, Jesus is going to say some hard things to us this summer. Jesus is going to say some great things to us this summer. But oftentimes, those great things are very difficult things and they can be painful but I trust that Jesus is going to use it to sanctify us to grow us to bring about change to bring about us to be more of this shining light community that he intends us to be here in the city of Fort Collins in northern Colorado so just by a point of clarification in verse 5 when he says uh, his disciples came to him that word disciples there, it's not the, the twelve. That word disciples is used in a more broad sense. It's simply people who are willing to follow Jesus. And if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, man, I, I really hope that this word will be, as Jesus' half-brother, the Apostle James says, that it will be a mirror. That we will look into it and see how our lives line up. And that's such a good illustration because when I look in the mirror, sometimes I don't like what I see. I got a little gray up top. I got a newborn, so there's some bags under the eyes. I got four kids now, so I'm like full-fledged dad bod. And it's like, this is the reality that I see when I look in the mirror. And likewise, when we look into the mirror of God's word in our own lives, sometimes we don't like what we see but it's reality and it's truth. But God is gracious and he's patient and he wants to bring about transformation in our lives. So that's the hope for this summer. But that grace and that transformation will only come when we properly understand Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teaching here. And that leads me to our second point, understanding. Understanding. So, how, as kingdom citizens, are we to understand this famous speech, this famous text? That's the question that we all wrestle with. 
I heard this week that there's some 38 different views on how to interpret the Sermon on the Mount. 38. And I was like, hmm, I wonder if I can preach a 38-point sermon. You can thank me later. So here's how I'm going to go about this point. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus often starts with the negative and then he moves to the positive. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to explain some ways that we should not understand the Sermon on the Mount. And then I'm going to go into a lot of detail on two ways that we need to understand the Sermon on the Mount. So first, the negative. First, the ways that we should not understand the Sermon on the Mount. The first one is we should not think of Jesus' teaching here as merely this moralistic list of things that we need to do in order for God to be pleased with us. No, that is the antithesis of grace. That is not what Jesus is intending here. And that is what you call legalism. And once you breathe that legalistic air, it permeates into all areas of your life. No, that's not what Jesus intends here. This is not a code of ethics for God to be happy with you. Many people think when they approach the Bible, that's what it is. Wrong. That's understanding, number one. The second one is kind of the opposite of that. And, and when you come to a list of things that Jesus is telling us how to live and what to do, people say, well, man, I, I can't do that. And so, man, praise God, what a Savior He is. And they take this licentious, this antinomian, this perspective that these commands that Jesus has have no bearing on our lives. And while there's an element of truth of that, yes, God's law is high, His standard is high, and you can't meet it, and you need a Savior, and that's why Jesus was sent, but that's not how we are supposed to interpret the Sermon on the Mount. And the last one, the Sermon on the Mount is not merely a blueprint for social progress, social justice. There's probably an element of truth to that, that this is how people should live. But the reality is, guys, is that Jesus is explaining about life in the kingdom. And there's people in this world who are not in the kingdom of God. But the people who are in the kingdom of God are supposed to be drastically different from the people who are in the kingdom of the world. And so we don't understand this as all the UN leaders get together and say, okay, the world just needs to do this, this, and this. No, that's not how Jesus intends us. So, how should we? If you've got a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 7. This is going to be great. I'm going to nerd out for a second. Okay. So, we have to see within this small section of the Gospel of Matthew that... This is actually part of a greater section of Scripture. So while we're in the woods of the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to zoom out. Just zoom out to the woods. And let's just look at how Matthew has designed his sermon. How, excuse me, how Matthew has designed his gospel as a whole. So in chapters 1 and 2, we've got the birth and origin of Jesus, as we've already seen. And then in chapters 26 through 28, we have the death and resurrection of Jesus. So those are kind of the two bookends of the Gospel of Matthew. But right in between are these five different sections. Five different sections of narrative and discourse. 
And the discourse ends with a transition statement. And Matthew intends us to look at this and read this and recognize it. So let's look at those transition statements. So we see the first one at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 7, verse 28. It says, and when Jesus, when Jesus finished these sayings, you're going to hear that repeated over and over again. We've just seen a section of narrative, story of Jesus, and then a discourse. And then in 728, when Jesus finished these sayings, that's a marker. Okay, next one, chapter 11, flip over to that. We've got a section of narrative, and then Jesus calls his disciples, and then he gives his apostles or disciples discourse, and then 11 verse 1 when Jesus finished instructing his 12 disciples. That's section number two. Stick with me here. We're going to chapter 13. Chapter 13 here. Got another section of narrative and then the discourse of the kingdom parables. And then in 1353, when Jesus had finished these parables, 1353, when Jesus had finished these parables, Going the distance here, chapter 19. Chapter 19, this is the fourth section. Jesus is talking about what it means to be a part of this upside down kingdom, this new community discourse. And in 19, verse 1, he says, When Jesus finished these sayings, I'm sure you see it. I'm sure you start to see it. The last one is in chapter 26, verse 1, right after the great judgment discourse. When Jesus had finished these sayings. So there's, there's a framework. There's a beautiful design that the author, Matthew, intended for us to see. And, G- and Matthew is making another connection actually to Moses. And just as Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, he now has five sections in his gospel. So, that's one way that we are to interpret the Gospel of Matthew. We are to see its small section in the greater whole. The other way that we need to is as we continue to examine the forest of Matthew's Gospel, we are to understand the Sermon on the Mount in regards to the rule and reign of the kingdom of God. The rule and the reign of the kingdom of of God. So you see this phrase throughout the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven, the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, my father's kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. As I was looking through these five different sections this week, I just started underlining every single time that I saw the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. It's mentioned over 50 times. You can't go more than one page without seeing this theme of the kingdom. And I think it is the theme of the entire Gospel of Matthew. We've seen it in our passage this morning, in 4.17 through 5.1, we saw it twice. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then, the other time. (laughs) Oh, the Gospel of the kingdom. Yeah, he's proclaiming the Gospel of the kingdom. In the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see it twice in the Beatitudes. We're going to see it three times in that small little section where Jesus says he's not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. 
In the Lord's Prayer, we are to pray that the kingdom of God is to come. We are to seek first His kingdom in our ambitions. And in the scary words, for all of us, as a warning, He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. So it's monumental. It's a monumental theme. And even zooming out from the Gospel of Matthew and seeing from Genesis to Revelation, this is, this is the great motif of all of the Scripture. And we see in Genesis chapter 1, when God creates, He's like a king setting forth decrees. And His servants, His creation, they obey. And He puts things into order and it's good. And then He creates man and woman and puts them in this little kingdom, the Garden of Eden, and they enjoy life with their king. And he just gives them one kingdom rule. It says, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Life is all good. Well, you know what happens. They commit treason against their king, and he banishes them from their kingdom, from his kingdom. And ever since then, humanity has been working its way back into the kingdom of God. Or they've been trying to, and it just doesn't work. And so, Jesus comes on the scene. He says, repent, pay attention, the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has come. So, what is it? What is the kingdom of God? I think the Bible uses it in this realm of rule and reign. The Bible doesn't really talk about this language of building the kingdom. No, it it has to do with the rule and reign of God. The rule that comes to individuals and that will someday come completely, fully. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a great quote when he described the kingdom of God. He said this, It is a kingdom which is to come, yes, but it is also a kingdom which has come. The kingdom of God is among you and within you. The kingdom of God is in every true Christian. He reigns in the church when she acknowledges him truly. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is yet to come. Now we must always bear that in mind. Whenever Christ is enthroned as king, the kingdom of God is come. So that while we cannot say that he is ruling over all the world at the present time, he is certainly ruling in that way in the hearts and lives of his people. And he will come and he will rule in the entire world. Physical, not just spiritual. And as I was thinking about this this week, I was trying to think... Here in America, we don't really understand this idea of kingdom or monarchy as much as people want. Man, praise God that Donald Trump is not our king. Can I get an amen or what? And praise God that we are a part of a democratic republic. But it's very, this idea of a kingdom is very foreign to us. And so as I was thinking about this, I thought of my own household. And I have authority in my house, as does my wife, and we have citizens of our kingdom, our four children, Solomon, Jude, Augie, and now beautiful baby Margot. And so, little Jude, oh hey Jude. So, 
Judas recently started chewing gum. And for a four-year-old, it is fantastic. And so every day, he comes up to me, Daddy, Daddy, can I have some gum? Can I have some gum? And more often than I'm not, yeah, here you go, Jude. Here's some gum. And he loves it. Then he comes up to me right after he wakes up, first thing in the morning, 7 a.m., Daddy, can I have some gum? I'm like, let's get some protein first, buddy. (laughs) So Jude doesn't like that. Jude doesn't like that response from his authority, from the kingly figure, daddy, in his life. So what does he do? What does he do? He goes to mommy. That's right. That's right. He goes to mommy, and we all know that a kingdom divided cannot stand. And so mommy, being wise, says, what'd your dad say? What'd your dad say, Jude? And and how's he respond? stomps away, like, come on, buddy. It's not, not how we're supposed to respond. But he's, but he's angry. He doesn't get what he wants. But he doesn't understand that that's not what's best for him, especially at 7 a.m. Sugary gum. It's kind of a silly illustration, but similarly, I think we are just like Jude. I think we are just like Jude when, when we live in the kingdom and then God sets forth something in our lives that Maybe we don't like, or we don't want to do, or we don't get. And how do we respond? We mope. We're angry. Why? I don't understand why. I just want this. And then we go to another source of authority. We go to the kingdom of self, and we try to find satisfaction there. But that's not what God has intended for us. And Jesus is helping us to see that His way, as we live in His kingdom, it's not supposed to be a straitjacket. No, we're actually free. We're actually meant to live how we were designed to live. And it just begs the question, will you trust Him? Will, will you trust this great King? And as we live out our identity as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, We submit our lives to the rule and reign of Jesus. And specifically what he says in his word. So, how does someone become a citizen of the kingdom? How how does someone get into the kingdom? It's probably more simple than you think. Oftentimes people think, I just got to prove my loyalty to this king. And then he'll let me in. Then he'll extend the invitation. And I need to stop doing this, this, and this, and I need to start doing this, this, and this. But that's not it. Simply a recognition and a a repentance of who this king is. First, recognition. Yes, Jesus is a teacher. But as we see in our passage here this morning, he's more than a teacher. He's healing people. He's bringing about restoration to these people that he created. And it's to show us that this teacher is in fact God himself. He is God himself who's bringing the rule and reign to your life and to mine. Also, repentance. And as you turn and as you pay attention, you believe You believe in who Jesus is, not merely a moralistic teacher, but God himself, who has the authority, who is speaking. 
And when you repent, and when you follow this king and his rule and reign, you're willing to follow him whatever the cost to your own life. Even if it means leaving father, boat, job, whatever. That's how someone is extended an invitation to the kingdom. You realize that you are no longer the great king of your own life. And in fact, by you putting yourself as that king figure in your own life, that's actually committed cosmic treason, just like happened all the way back in the garden. But here's the good news. Amidst your rebellion, amidst your treason, that great king comes to you and extends an invitation. He extends the invitation by coming to the earth, by living a life without sin, by dying a bloody, horrible death on a cross. And he didn't just stay in that grave. Ladies and gentlemen, he rose from the dead. And he is ruling and he is reigning right now. And he wants to rule and reign in your life. And it just begs the question, do you believe in this king? Do do you want to be a part of his kingdom? It is a kingdom that is full of joy. It is a kingdom that is full of freedom. If you live how he intends you to live. And so, when someone accepts the invitation, that king actually, you don't just come to live with him. He he comes to live in you. And he changes you from the inside out. He gives you a new heart, a heart that is soft, and a heart that is willing to follow him at whatever the cost. Whatever it says in his word, yes and amen, Lord. You are my great king. I pledge my allegiance to you. And that transformation, that regeneration of the heart is such a beautiful thing. It's such a beautiful thing. It's such a freeing thing. And you not only become a citizen as an individual, you're welcomed into this great community of the people of God. And we live our lives for the fame of Jesus' name, not the fame of our own name. And so once that happens, then it becomes our desire to obey Him. It becomes our desire to not only understand what He says to us in His Word, but to live it out in our lives. And that leads me to our third and final point. Obeying as citizens in the kingdom of heaven. So the, the life that is described in the Sermon on the Mount, is just, it's a life that has a great deal of care and consideration. So if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've entrusted yourself to his care, if you believe that he has died and risen from the dead for your sins, then all other callings in your life take a back seat. And you are to live fundamentally different in this world. Fundamentally different. I think one of the central verses of the Sermon on the Mount is chapter 6, verse 8. When Jesus is comparing his citizens to the citizens of the world, the, the hypocrites, he says, do not be like them. Do not be like them. Kingdom citizens are to be holy. They are to be different. They are to be set apart. They are to be sanctified. Their lives are meant to be a stark contrast from the world around them. And guys, that's why I think we really need this sermon this summer. The Sermon on the Mount. 
I need it. And you guys need it too. And so kingdom citizens, they think and they respond differently to the different circumstances and situations in their life when they're falsely accused, when they have relational conflict, their roommates or their spouse. Kingdom citizens take their wedding vows seriously. And divorce is not an option because Jesus will never divorce us. He will never leave us, never forsake us. Kingdom citizens treat their enemies differently, handle their money differently, how they pray is different, and specifically how they love others. They don't love people by telling them what they want to hear. No, they tell them what they need to hear. So all these things we're going to tackle this summer. We're going to hit them head on. And we're not only going to sit underneath Jesus' teaching. No, we're going to sit under His authority. Look with me again at chapter 7, verse 28. Here's that great transition statement, that marker, 728. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. For He was teaching them as one who had authority not as their scribes. Jesus just didn't have authority back then. No, King Jesus has authority here and now. You see, Jesus can't merely be teacher. Jesus can't merely be your Savior. No, He's Savior and Lord. He's teacher and Redeemer. He is the great King that we pledge our allegiance to. But when you think about authority, authority is kind of, it gets a bad rap in our culture, right? We, we don't like authority. <laughs> but authority is actually a really good thing. And I just encourage you to think through who's, who's been an authoritative figure in your life that's been a good authority. Maybe it's been a parent, maybe not, but maybe you've had a great authority in a parental figure. Or maybe a teacher in school. Or maybe a boss at work. When you see that authority figure and they want to bring out the best in you and they know how to do that, that's a good thing. That is a good thing. I was also thinking about stoplights. Stoplights are a great authority here in the city of Fort Collins. Could you imagine what life would be like if we didn't have stoplights? I mean, maybe you've been to another country and there are no stoplights and it's chaos. Chaos, by definition, lawlessness. So authority is a good thing. Authority is a very good thing. But here's the deal. The Bible says when you make yourself your own authority, that's not a good thing. When you want to be the king, when you want to have those decisions, and I live my life how I want to live, that's, that's not a good way to live, guys. It's not a good way to live, one, because you're going to have to answer to the greater authority at the end of your life. You're going to have to give an account. But the other thing is it's not satisfying. You're on this rat race of, okay, I just need to find the next thing. I just need to purchase this. I need to get with this person. I need to have this relationship. I need to try this drug. And it's not satisfying. You're looking for the next best thing. You're trying, you're running, 
you're exhausted because you are enslaved. And you were never designed to have this satisfaction outside of Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 20, Matthew eleven eight through 30, He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let us come to Him this summer. Let us come to Him here today. And let us obey Him with joy because He is the great King who laid down His life for us. So two charges. Two charges as I shut it down. The first one is as you're walking through the Sermon on the Mount here with us on Sunday mornings, I encourage you, Spend some extended time in Matthew 5-7 through this summer. Both individually, devotionally, but also with other people. Whether it's folks in your life group, or if you have a smaller journey group, discipleship group, or maybe a spouse, or husbands, lead your family through sections on the Sermon on the Mount as we go through them. Many of you know that we have a great children's curriculum And I opened it up this morning to read it to my kids, and lo and behold, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, praise God. (laughs) That was not planned. (laughs) So that's the first one. That's the first charge. Spend some extended time sitting underneath Jesus. And the last one, are you willing to answer the call to follow Him whenever He calls you this summer? Because He will. He's going to say things to all of us that we probably don't want to hear, but we really need to hear. And I hope and I pray that our church, that we answer that call to follow Him, whatever the cost. When we do that, we will shine brightly. We will shine as lights. People will be attracted not to us, not to the crossing, but to Jesus, the great King. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you. I thank you for your word that you have providentially preserved for us. Lord, thank you that you have led us to walk through the Sermon on the Mount this summer. And Lord, I pray as we come and sit underneath your teaching that we would come and bow before you as our great King. And that we would see that our lives, yes, they don't line up, but you are a great king who cares for us, who is patient, who wants to bring about change and transformation in our life. And God, I pray that you would save many people, that many people would come to know you because of your kingdom citizens shining brightly and inviting more people to come underneath the rule and reign of God. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.